Welcome to Woman's Zone, connecting women through their stories. The universe began as a story. Well, I read these words by Nigerian-British writer Ben Okri in a book called The Storyteller's Way, a must for anyone who loves to tell and listen to a good tale. Well, such a person is British Sue Hollingsworth, professional storyteller, who travels the world in pursuit of her craft. Co-author of The Storyteller's Way, Sue has more recently partnered with South African narrative arts practitioner Marlene Winberg to produce a book called The Gathering Bag. It's a collection of dramatic women's stories from the San or Tun tradition. But there's much more to this collection than that. And to find out, I spoke to Sue in the rock art section of the Aziko National Museum in Cape Town. But I asked her first to explain a gathering bag. So a gathering bag was used by the San hunters and gatherers, the women, would be made out of animal skin and probably gifted to them by a hunter together with the story of how the animal was captured. And then the woman would make um, a bag with a long strap that would go round her and decorate it with beads and all kinds of beautiful colours. And in that gathering bag, as she walked along every day, she would gather berries, she would use her digging stick to get to dig up roots and everything would be popped into the gathering bag and at the end of the day all the women would gather round, empty their gathering bags onto the sand, onto the rock and then they would create a meal from it because they very rarely ate meat so this was really the source of nourishment. So when we were thinking about a title um, it came about because first of all Marlene's always been really in a way kind of a wonderful obsession about gathering bags she paints them often and um, it was while she was showing them to me that I suddenly said you know this would be a perfect perfect title for the book because the way we've looked at it is the book itself we hope is a good nourishment for people the stories and the many different layers and we feel like well we're older women now we're both in our 60s later 60s and it's like well we're offering up the contents of our gathering bags that we've gathered during our lives to hopefully provide some nourishment for other people well i want to say that you are both gathering bags yourselves (laughs) (laughs) but i want to find out a little bit more about you sue as a sort of universal Uh storyteller but before we do let's find out a little bit about marlene because Mm. i think that this is a project that she's been working on for over three decades Mm. can you give us a synopsis of marlene and her quest Oh gosh, well you could get of course many more stories from Marlene herself and I hope that you will do. But Marlene's been involved with the San people for a long time, right back way before independence when she was sent north into um, the northern territories of South Africa to talk to some of the Kun people who had arrived there on foot from Angola having been displaced from the war by the war so that was the very beginnings of her interest and she became uh, 
great friends with these people and went to see them often and eventually started drawing with them and listening to their stories and uh, starting to learn their language a little. And it's from there that the seeds of this book come because she made great friends with a woman called Maniputo who was a healer and it was Maniputo herself who asked Marlene to take these stories and please make them into a book because, of course, some people had no original written language and she was afraid that these stories would die out. So Marlene was, way back in the 90s, entrusted with this task of somehow getting these traditional stories onto paper and out into the world so that they would not be forgotten. In fact, Maniputu has a wonderful quote, which is on the book, Mm. and I know that we're sitting here in the Iziko National Museum, and we can hardly see a thing because (laughs) it's so dark, but I'm going to shine a light on the wonderful quote from Maniputu, and you can just read it to us. So, uh, her full name was Maniputu Manongo Manieka, and she said to Marlene, I cannot write as we did not have writing in the past. We talked to each other and learnt from each other. This is how our knowledge survived. Write my stories on paper and make a book so that the people can remember. Well, that is um, prophetic and chilling, isn't it? Mm. And that's exactly what Marlene has done. So, um, you know, it feels to me that um, Marlene is a little bit like a latter-day Lucy Lloyd, um, Uh who, of course, back in the whenever it was, 19-something, listened to the stories of the Kham people, I think it was. So did Marlene do a lot of conscious listening for the women's stories? She listened to all kinds of stories. She listened to the men's stories. She listened to the women's stories. She listened to traditional stories. She listened to healing stories. And she listened to contemporary stories of the war um, and, and the way that they'd fled to what they consider to be safety in in South Africa. So, yes, I would say Marlene is an accomplished listener. So she's a listener, but I think Lucy Lloyd, she with her brother-in-law, I think, who put together this sort of language and, and put it on paper and translated it and put it physically into words... With Marlene, did she? Did they have a, a language in common? Was she able to understand what they were saying, and they her? Oh, this is opening up a really big subject, which actually I talk about in the book. The whole thing about taking words from one language through another language into a written form, and then, in fact, in this book, back out again, because these stories go out to storytellers all over the world who receive them in writing and not through the ear. But um, So some of the Sam people spoke Afrikaans, which is Marlene's native language, her first language. So there was that. But the stories themselves, of course, were told in the original Khun language. And there she needed the help of younger people to help her move from that original oral language into the written versions. And she was... She speaks about it in the book, about how she checked to make sure that the stories were as accurate as possible to what the original storytellers had told her. And sometimes a translation can add another layer, can't it? It can bring it another nuance, um, at the same time hopefully remaining faithful, but the essence of the story remains there. But I think that was in part what you were there to do, uh, coincidentally, that you were there to help make the stories more accessible beyond this particular place. Just, just tell us mm. how you and Marlene connected on this project. 
We connected because when Marlene told me about her promise to Maniputo back in the 90s, this was 20 years later and she still hadn't written the book, and because she had a deep question, which was, would these stories, these ancient stories that she'd received, actually speak to women in the world today? Because the stories are all about very strong, independent, feisty women and very clever uh, girls as well. And she wanted to know, would they have a relevance to other women? And so as we talked, there we came up with the idea, well, maybe if these stories were to go out into the world, perhaps one each to a storyteller from all kinds of different countries, and we asked them to write a reflection on it, how it what it meant to them in their lives, we might learn something. So that's where I got involved, because I have an international network of storytellers because I've been storytelling for 30 years and so I know people all over the world and so that's how the stories got to go out to Australia to New Zealand Japan, India Turkey Greece, Spain Mexico, of course South Africa and I also received one so as well as writing something in the beginning of the book about the project I also write one of the reflections on one of the stories which is called Lion Woman So it's completely universal I mean these are Mm. global stories Mm. that have been sort of um, born here and yet rebirthed elsewhere Extraordinary So how did you get that process going? So you knew all these storytellers and all the countries that you mentioned there Turkey, did you say, in mm. New Zealand, Australia, Japan, where they've got very strong cultural, historical, storytelling mm. um, ethics of their own. What did you do? Just pop them a letter in the post or an email and say, you know, how are we doing with this one? How did the process actually work? Well, first of all, I, I tried to think of storytellers who I felt would be willing to take up the challenge because obviously it is a huge challenge you know you're receiving a story from a culture which is nothing to do with you and you may never have been to the country which is what happens to storytellers all the time Uh, we have to kind of imaginatively enter into it so I wanted people who would be up for the challenge I wanted people who would not feel too uncomfortable about having to write a response because obviously storytelling is an oral art so we're all very used to speaking this for example is my ideal medium that we're doing now radio is the ideal medium for a storyteller but to give we can't see your hands moving as much <laughs> as they are yeah everything's moving <laughs> but um you know I, I, I needed people who would be who would be willing to receive a story in a written form and also send a response in a written form. Even if their English wasn't good, it didn't matter because obviously I could help them, but who'd be willing to take up the challenge. And then each of the ten stories in the book has a certain theme to it. And so I also wondered if I could perhaps call for people who would have a particular connection, maybe not with the sun people themselves, but with the theme of the story. And so I had to use my intuition with that. And then I I wrote an, an invitation to each of these women to say, would you would you be willing? And at the beginning I think I thought it would just be a case of If they said yes, I would send them the story. I would ask them to respond to it in about 500 words, and that would be it. But, of course, it just so wasn't it, Nancy. It so wasn't it. First of all, it's very hard to write 500 words because it's not very much. 
So it's easy to write a couple of thousand, but 500, you have to distill it down. And for people whose English was sometimes their third language, for some of the people, there was a lot of to and fro with me, trying to understand what they meant, you know, helping them with it. But then also the X factor, which no one else could, you know, we could not have even dreamt that this would have happened, was COVID. Oh. So this was all going on. It's, it started just before the pandemic. Mm. And then we all kind of all over the world got locked down. So we had this global phenomenon that united us all, no matter which country we were in. And I don't know about anyone else, but personally, I myself was hugely lonely during that time. I miss the contact that I have through telling stories to audiences. I miss the contact, face-to-face -face contact with teaching, storytelling, and I couldn't travel. And I'm, I am a traveler. <laughs> like many storytellers of old, I travel with stories and I collect and hear stories as I go. And I just felt cut off from all that, absolutely disempowered. I felt I had no voice, I had no income. I was completely separated. And through that experience, I started to get a deeper understanding of perhaps the original storytellers who had also been separated. Separated from the landscape in which these stories took place, separated from their cultural groups in many ways. Yeah, a huge separation also from the, the the glance and the energy of the storyteller they were they would been completely severed these stories have been severed from their roots and I thought okay this is an opportunity for me to take this feeling that I've got to make something creative out of it so during the pandemic I invited all the people who'd been asked to contribute to a regular zoom call and on those Zoom calls, we took it in turns to tell one of the stories, whichever story we would, we'd been given. And then we all had a very fruitful conversation about it. And sometimes we cried and sometimes we laughed and sometimes we shrieked with laughter, I have to say. And we shared our stories. And then after some of that sort of participatory response, I would call it. Release. Mm, release. And, and participatory response, of course, is what happen, would happen when the stories were originally told. Everyone would get involved in talking about them. And then after that, the storyteller would read the 500 words that they'd written, and we'd all just sort of bathe in the interpretation that was coming from this particular woman's life in this country about this story from long, long ago. What an incredible process! Uh, what an incredible process, coloured by COVID, almost mm. almost a flame fanned by COVID in mm. some strange way. I mean, you know, the idea of Zoom meetings is anathema, and yet so wonderful um, to bring people together in this sort of very lonely time. But those lonely times were deeply reflective for a lot of people. So, mm. in a way you couldn't have chosen a better time because I imagine perhaps a lot of people were in the same sort of boat as you. It was not having so much to really do and something like this to immerse yourself in. I mean, 500 words, as you say, is very little, but there could be hours to get to that. Oh, yes. So, I'm, firstly, I'm longing to hear one of the stories, but um, before we do, maybe some of the themes that the stories embodied? Right. Well, some of the themes are uh, 
quite entertaining, but some of them are quite disturbing because they speak of all aspects of the women's lives. So you hear about um, how a woman can keep herself safe, you know, from abuse or from uh, creatures which want to live with her and maybe... Uh, abuse her. So you hear quite tough stories. You hear about young children, young girls who uh, their family wants to cast them out, their siblings want to cast them out and how they save themselves. So these are stories of incredible resourcefulness. They also are stories of um, where you hear about their, the women's incredible resourcefulness for living in the bush, you know, how they survive. You hear stories of initiation for women as well, some of them quite surprising, I think. And in fact, I chose one of those stories. I, I chose a story called Lion Woman, which I slowly, in my sort of COVID-befuddled state, came to realise was a really classic initiation story. And how, how women were then respected once they had gone through something, you know, their status within the group, you know, they were fascinating stories. So it's extraordinary. So we're looking at not just how stories survive the passage of time. I mean, mm. many of these stories would have been from way back when. But also the sort of relevance of today. I mean, the fact that you yeah. would even be talking about safety, I think. But, you know, of course, one has in mind, you know, walking dark streets and rape mm. and all the GBV mm. and all that sort of thing that we are inflicted by now. But mm. clearly safety has been an issue for women forever and probably will remain so. Absolutely. There's a, there's a fantastic story in the book, actually, about two um, sisters who uh, have to save themselves from an ogre. And it's quite explicit what he wants from them. You know, he absolutely wants to rape them and how they, they save themselves. You know, and they're incredibly resourceful, so um, brave. And also they use what they've got around them. And they happen to have uh, collected a bag of a gathering bag of red ants <laughs> and how they use the red ants to get out of the situation which is incredibly funny but it's uh, incredibly resourceful I think so yes it's about contemporary issues about women's lives about marriage you know about um, motherhood about what happens if you are a woman who has a particular destiny perhaps who's chosen in some way to visit the other world, the spirit world, and come back with healing for your people. How, how does that happen? What is the kind of response of people when you come back? I mean, it covers a multitude of, of themes in this book. Yes, I was going to say, are any of them funny? And so I'm glad you, <laughs> you said that because one longs for something a little bit sort of lighter. But at the end of each story, as short as they may be, is, I haven't had the privilege to read the book yet, but is there sort of um, reflections? Is there a sort of unpacking of the story? I, you know, gone through it to make some more sense of it? Well, the individual storyteller does that. So whichever storyteller it got sent to, they make their sense from their culture, from their perspective, and they take the themes they're interested in from that particular story. Um, before the stories come the piece that Marlene and I individually wrote for the book, where Marlene gives the story of how the, the stories were collected, and that gives you a certain context and understanding for the stories. And then I speak also about the process of being an oral storyteller myself, and having a deep reverence for the time before writing. 
for at a time for peoples who didn't have a written language and how I how I try myself as a modern woman to reconcile this deep reverence for the oral story with this world where if you can't read if you have if just if you can't read you are so lamed and if you don't even have a written language originally how do you live in this world where black marks on white sheets means something to people and I explore that as well in what I've written so by the time you get to the stories there's quite a lot of background and context and then you have the the sort of sparkle if you like of the stories themselves and and the reflections from these particular women from all around the world and you know what they came up with is nothing that Marlene and I could ever have imagined you know, it's a completely unique take mm. on the story. What a rich, rich book on so many levels. So, uh, given that you are an intrepid storyteller travelling the world with your little bag of stories mm-hmm. on wheels, I can imagine you going through the airport with your bag on wheels. Mm-hmm. Tell us one of the stories, not all necessarily 500 words, but abbreviate one of the stories for us. Well, the 500 words is a response to the story, and the stories themselves are very different lengths. So there's some that are quite long, there's some that are quite short. But maybe the best one to tell you, I'll just tell you a little, what I would call a bony version, you know, a sort of short version of the story which I received, because I lived with this story for a long time, as did all the storytellers. We didn't rush to write about them. We lived with them for a while. And I live in the mountains in Wales, in the United Kingdom, and I love walking. So one of the things I did was I took the stories, I took the story out for a walk, because that's of course the people that were connected with semi-nomadic people, and they would have walked all the time. So I, I walked along the mountains in Wales, telling the story, and I told the story to the mountains, to trees, to rivers, because. For a storyteller, these are all sentient beings who are, who are listening, and why would they not be interested in the story? So the story I received is about a woman who had a husband who wasn't really a very great husband. He didn't seem to bring home enough meat, he argued a lot, and he didn't really seem to help with the children or with anything much that was going on, and eventually she got completely fed up with this. So one day, the woman, early, early in the morning, while the stars were still out, she stood up, she picked up her sleeping skin, her gathering bags, and she took a calabash, and she walked away from her husband and children, and she decided she would walk back to where her family were. So she set off and she walked and she walked and she walked and on the way she used her digging stick to dig up roots and put them in her gathering bag and she took the berries and put them in her gathering bag until she had a nice big fat gathering bag so that she could stop somewhere and eat that night. And then towards the end of the afternoon she saw a bee and you know where there is a bee there's honey. So she followed the bee and soon there were other bees and at last she came to a tree And in that tree, there was a hive full of rich honey. So she climbed up into the tree, and she she lit a fire first. She climbed up into the tree, and she smoked the bees out, as she'd been taught to do. And then she filled her calabash with huge golden um, combs of honey. And then she put the 
calabash with the honey. And I tell you what, we're going to we'll, have to we'll wait. Rec- yes. We'll record. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we've got passing by here uh, at least 30, 40, maybe 50 little children, all with backpacks on. And they've all got gathering bags. <laughs> they've got their own <laughs> gathering bags. And they are very excited. This is like the Pied Piper, and there's a couple of latecomers. <laughs> and off they go. So they're here to gather all sorts of stories. <laughs> well, they were... <laughs> They were an interlude, weren't they? They're gathering knowledge, aren't yes, they? Yes, bless facts. their hearts. Well, they're very busy chatting, so I'm not sure how much knowledge <laughs> they're gathering is sharing, perhaps. But anyway, what yeah, a treat. Absolutely. So there she is with her calabash and, and the honey. She comes down the tree and she puts the calabash near to the fire so that the honey will melt off the comb. And by now it's dark and she decides, yes, she'll stay here for the night. So she gathers more wood. She builds up the fire to keep the predators away, of course. And then she makes a meal for herself out, out of what she's gathered in her gathering bag and she lies down to sleep. And sometime in the middle of the night, she's awoken by the roar of a lion. And the lion is right there. And when she opened her eyes, all she could see was the white, sharp teeth of the lion and she could smell its fetid breath and she thought this is it I'm going to die here this is the end of my story but then she grabbed her sharp pointed digging stick and she thrust it right into the mouth of the lion and then quickly she picked up the calabash and she poured the boiling hot honey into the mouth of the lion and the lion gave this last great roar and it died it dropped down dead right in front of her. And then in the morning, when the sun came up, she carried on her way back to her family's house. And when she got there, of course, she told them the story, as you would do. You know, she'd been attacked by a lion, but she'd managed to save herself. And the people said, no way. There's no way a woman can possibly save herself from a lion. You take us to this place where you say you've killed a lion. We will see for ourselves. So the people come back with her, her parents, her siblings, all the people, and they see the dead lion lying underneath the tree by the remains of her fire. And then they're like, my goodness, you are such a woman. You are such a strong woman. You have killed a lion. And then they skin the lion there and they bring it back and she cures the hide and makes herself a beautiful sleeping skin which is very high status to be sleeping on the skin of a lion. And every night she goes to bed on the skin of the lion and they start to call her Lion Woman. But in the meantime, way, way back across the desert somewhere, there is her husband who's finding life, I imagine, a little bit more tricky on his own. So he decides to go and see if he can find his wife. And he walks back to where he knows her people are And uh, when he gets there, he hears about the fact that his wife has killed a lion and that she's known as Lion Woman and treated with the deepest respect by all the people. And as you can imagine, her husband becomes very obedient from that time onward and brings back lots of food and helps look after the children and doesn't seem to argue so much. (laughs) Relevant or what? (laughs) Very relevant, I think. (laughs) See, that's the most amazing story. I mean, I kept expecting it to end, and then there was another bit. bit. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And each and every one of these stories, I'm sure, is equally powerful. Mm -hmm. 
So, last question then. Um, here it is, this book full of universal stories written by, birthed in Africa, written from all over the world. Will it be translated? I mean, can we even consider that into a hundred languages? My goodness. Now, that's something I've not even had time to think about yet because it's just literally been published, Nancy. But what a thought, because a lot of the San people these days do speak Afrikaans, of course, and Marlene herself, that's her native language. So I cannot think of anything perhaps more lovely than to think about it being translated, maybe not just into Afrikaans. I mean, I, I have um, another book which I wrote before, which is called The Storyteller's Way. And interestingly, that has started to be translated now. And it's interesting to see what happens in the translation of a book. So the first language it was translated into was Turkish, which I have no idea about. And apparently a very beautiful job has been done of it and now there are many many people all over Turkey um, getting together in groups and having like storytellers way groups so one of my dreams is to foster and encourage gathering bag groups where groups of women come together and explore the stories and the themes that are in them and so perhaps this idea that you've had of translating it into other languages could actually help bring that about. I would love that to be a possibility. From your lips to God's ears, and I will be the first one to join a gathering bag group. Sue Hollingsworth, thank you so much, and very best of luck. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs>